0: Amen, amen. Let's take out a copy of God's Word now and open it to the Old Testament book of Genesis, the Old Testament book of Genesis, chapter ten. Genesis chapter ten. If you have a copy of the Word, uh, open that up. You can use your phone. We also have Bibles in the pews now, so feel free to grab one of those. Genesis chapter ten, which is which is known by many people as the Table of Nations. It's known as the Table of Nations. And what we have here is a genealogical record of Shem, Japheth, and Ham's people who came after them. Now, if you're um, uh, used to reading um, the Bible throughout the year, uh, sometimes we get to those genealogical records and uh, we tend to avoid them, right? You tend to just kind of read through them as fast as you can. So we're not going to do that tonight. What we're going to do is I'm going to give you some history about the people who are mentioned here and where they lived, and then we're going to apply that to our lives as believers. So I gave you this as just kind of a way of reference. If you didn't get one of these, I think Brandon set them on the back table. You can get one. Um, this has a map on where the people of, the, of Shem, Ham, and Japheth settled. So you see the map. You can see Japheth up in the northern Mediterranean area. Shem is uh, Persian Gulf area, and then Ham is down in what we would, you know, now today is like Egypt and northeastern, or southwest of of the Red Sea. So um, this might be something you want to look at as I read, and then the backside are all of the people or the nations who are mentioned in this table, or in the table of uh, nations. So if you want to like follow along, all that is here, and... This is it. So you can, those are on those back table if you want to grab one, and you can take that home with you for future reference. So the table of nations. Now this is rightly called the table of nations because it provides a genealogical record of the nations of people who came from Noah's son, Shem, Japheth, and Ham. That is, in fact, whom all of us have come from. So all of us are related through Noah and his three sons So in a way, these are your people, right? You came from one of them, and so this is your genealogical record. Now it is uh, thousands of years ago, but it is where we come from. The Table of Nations provides a remarkable account of peoples and geographical locations of their settlements. And the, the Japhethites, that's Japheth's family line, are associated with the northern and western areas of Asia Minor. So you can see that in the top left corner of your map there. The Hamites, those who descend from Ham, are associated with Egypt, Mesopotamia, and some parts of Arabia. And the Shemites are associated with the areas of the northern Mesopotamia, Syria, and Arabia. Now the focus of this genealogy, this is a fancy word called ethnographic, which means uh, ethnogeographic, which means It's uh, describing boundaries of nations of people. And so what we'll read is we'll read about these sons, and then when you read it, you'll look at it, and you'll think, wait, later in the Bible, they're mentioned as a place or a nation. So what's happened is these are the original names of the sons, and then from that, nations or groups of people are named after them. So who can think of... A nation in the Old Testament that's named after a person. Anybody? Who said Israel? Miss Peggs, you get, if I had candy tonight, you would get it. Next week, you get a gold star. Nation of Israel, because they descend from who? Israel. Well, Jacob, who later was renamed Israel, right? So that's the same same thing that's going on here uh, in this part of the text. The focus of this will be, um, in, in the listing here, Moses lists 70 nations overall. The list is not exhaustive, right? So he lists the people as called by the Lord. Now, the question you might have is, why are genealogies important? Why take the time to use the precious word of God, the space we have in this word, why did God list people who come from people who come from people who come from people and so on. Well, John MacArthur, one pastor, writes this. He says, Genealogies play a significant role in Scripture by rooting the biblical account in history. So remember, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Part of his reason for writing the book of Genesis is that the book of Genesis is an apologetic or a defense for belief in Yahweh, God, as the one true God. So when Moses writes genealogies inside of the book of Genesis, he's hoping that other peoples will read this and they'll see their place in God's plan. See, the goal has always been that people would discover and worship the one true God of the universe. So let me continue. This is from John MacArthur. Because of their importance, the Jews kept very, careful genealogical records, which survived all the way until the Romans sacked Jerusalem and burned the temple in A.D. 70. So they had their careful, carefully created and protected genealogical records all the way up until the temple was burned in A.D. 70 by the Romans. Now, the folks over at the Bible Project say something else that's interesting. They said, remember that the genealogies in the Old Testament are always working to communicate multiple layers of information to the readers. Genealogies obviously trace family trees, but they also help us to follow priestly and royal lines. What do we have uh, at the beginning of two of our Gospels? What do we have listed there? Are they genealogies about a certain someone who we celebrate birth at Christmas? Jesus, right? Now why is it important... For Jesus' genealogy be listed, because the Israelites knew that their Messiah would come from a very specific line of Israel, of a very specific family line. And so they're listing to show how Jesus is the prophesied legitimate Savior. So that's the other reason that the, the Bible's authors use genealogical lines to demonstrate God's faithfulness and the fulfillment of God's promises. Now the genealogies in Scripture help us trace our family line back to God. They remind us also that we are of one human race. We all come from the same person. We all have the same creator. We are all brothers and sisters. That should put things into perspective in the way that we treat one another. Finally, Bible genealogies illustrate the fulfillment of God's promises, which culminate and the promised Messiah, Jesus. So, the table of nations in verses 1 through 32 present three branches of Noah's genealogical line through Japheth, Ham, and Shem. These are his three sons. I'm going to rely heavily on one particular writing. It's a commentary by a man named Kenneth Matthews and he wrote the com- one commentary on the book of Genesis. I use him often in our, our studies here on Sunday nights, but I just want to let you know, if you, if you want to dig into this even deeper, uh, that would be a good um, resource for you to check out. All right, let's go into first the sons of Japheth. This is verses 1 through 5. The sons of Japheth, beginning in verse 1. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and the sons were born to them after the flood. <clears throat> Excuse me, the, the birth of the boys, the birth order of the boys, of Noah's boys, were Shem, Japheth, and Ham. Moses changes that order in his description of the genealogical record. We don't really know why he does that. The only answer I have is Japheth, in the, in the future, after Genesis chapter 10 and 11, Japheth is important, but not mentioned as much. Ham is the, the, uh, has the descendants that become ultimately the Canaanites, whom you probably recognize as enemies of Israel oftentimes uh, throughout the Old Testament. And then Shem, of course, is the father of Israel. So I think that he, he got through uh, Japheth first because he's not really a focus later. And then he talks about Ham. Ham. Uh, who are the enemy of the Israelites, and then the culmination of the presentation, of course, is Shem, uh, and that is the line of Israel. And so we're going to talk about Japheth first. Verse 2 continues. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshech and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Riphath and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish, Kidim and Dodimim. From these coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. Gomer probably refers to the Sumerians, also known from Assyrian and Greek texts, who originally inhabited the area north of the Black Sea, that's southern Russia and Ukraine. In the late second millennium BC, They were pushed into Caucasus Mountains and beyond by invading Scythians. Now, it's interesting. Gomer also occurs in Ezekiel's book, chapter 38, verses 1 through 6, in a description of Israel's northern enemies, along with Gog and Magog, and is related to the armies of Bet-Togermah. That's one of Gomer's sons. So what I'm going to do in each of these listings is I'm only going to give you the details of the sons of, of the three sons. So he, he's listed, you know, Shem and his sons and then sons of them. I'm just going to do the primary. So I'm going to do Shem's sons and Japheth's sons and um, Ham's sons um, just because of the time for tonight. So you're just going to hear about each of those sort of first generation sons of Noah's sons. So we talked about Gomer. Let's talk about Magog. Because of its geographical depiction in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, uh, we believe that it was a sign that they lived in the regions um, of the far north. And you can find also a description of Magog in Revelation chapter 20, verse eight. They're also associated, however, with the peoples of Asia Minor, uh, known as Tubal and Meshech. Now what about Madai? That's another son. That's a common term in the Old Testament that refers to the Medes. You've ter- heard a lot in throughout the Old Testament of the Medes and the Persians. They rose to power in a period during the Old Testament time. They inhabited the region northeast of the Tigris River, uh, modern northwest Iran, if you look at a, a modern map. Javan uh, refers to the Ionian Greeks who settled in southern Greece and western Asia Minor. The name occurs with Tubal and Meshech in the prophets, Isaiah chapter 66 and Ezekiel chapter 27. The last two sons mentioned there, Tubal and Meshech, uh, usually occur in tandem in the Old Testament throughout the book of Ezekiel, and they inhabited Central and Eastern Asia Minor. So Tubal is associated with the Akkadian, uh, Tubali, and Meshek is commonly identified as Mesuku, They're named in Assyrian text. So, how is this important? So, Moses lists the people and who they came from. Now, in Assyria, much later, someone there has a genealogical record as well. And what do they see? The same people. Now, what does that do? It shows them that they have a line, a lineage, back to the creator God of the Jewish Old Testament. So, that's how... Uh, genealogical line can be used as a um, apologetic or as a way uh, to share the good news about Yahweh. So, that's Japheth. Let's move on to the sons of Ham. That begins in verse 6. With the listing of the youngest son, that's Ham, uh, we come to those People who significantly impacted the history of the Israelites. Among these were the traditional enemies of Abraham's descendants, such as Egypt, Canaan, Assyria, Babylon. All of those people groups that you read about in the Old Testament come from Ham. Now, um, among these, um, including these names, you'll see listed clans, individuals, and cities named after people. There's four groups that come from Ham. Cush, Mizraim, which is Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Seven people are listed as the descendants of Cush in verse 7, seven from Mizraim, and the dominant interest of the author, however, is this Hamite named Nimrod, who receives special attention. He's uh, the only one in this, in this text who who gets so much attention to one single person. So we'll talk about him as well. So let me just read this part of the text. It begins in verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba and Hivalah and Sabta and Rama, and Sabteca. And the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria, and built Nineveh, and Rehoboth, Ir, and Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is, the great city. Mizraim became the father of Ludim, and Anamim, and Lahabim, and Nephtalim, and Peruthisim, <coughs> Koslahim, from which came the Philistines, and Kapturim. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Het, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Arkite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite, and afterward the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad." The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar as far as Gaza as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands and by their nations. That was a mouthful to read. You think it's hard to just read that, try saying it out loud. The first tier of Ham's lineage consists of four offspring, right? So we have Cush, we have Mizraim, who is Egypt, we have Put and Canaan. Now Cush is in Africa's Nubia area, located south of Egypt. Cush often occurs elsewhere in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 37 and Jeremiah 13, and appears in the garden description in chapter two, Genesis 2.13. Misrium is really a transliteration of the Hebrew word for, e- for Egypt. It's a dual form meaning two Egypts. So when they say that they mean two Egypts, the upper and the lower Egypt. And it's later remembered as the tents of Ham in Psalm 7851. Now put is Libya, which is west of Egypt on the northern coast. And then of course Canaan is critical to understanding the genealogy as 924, Noah's curse on Canaan that we talked about last week, shows. It occupies the author's attention as its lengthy space in the Hamite Hamite language uh, lineage and its territory elaboration indicate. The term Canaan has a complex history in and outside of the Bible. It exhibits a fluidity of usage. And so, for instance, it represents geographical locations, as well as people groups. So, as a geographical reference, it speaks generally of a strip of land that lies west of the Jordan River that the Israelites looked forward to entering one day. What's that land called? It's Israel, but what... The promised land, right? The land promised to Israel by God. That was inhabited by Canaanites. That's generally where they settled. You can see that there on the map. And so, um, this is modern-day Israel, of course. It includes Lebanon and portions of Syria as well. Now, by associating the name with Egypt, the table reflects an early period when the land of Canaan was under and subject to Egyptian control. The boundaries of Canaan reported in verse 19 of this text are especially significant for later Israel, since it's the land of Canaan that became promised to Abraham and then to the Israelites. So at times in the biblical record, as is found among external sources as well, Canaan was used specifically of a people as well. You see in the Old Testament um, that they mention a group of people called Canaanites, right? These would be people who were descended from Canaan, one of the sons of Ham. At other times and places, the term overlaps with many diverse people who inhabited uh, the Palestinian Palestine area. Canaan, for example, refers to people inha- inhabiting the plains of the Jordan Valley that we read about in the Old Testament. It also may specifically distinguish them from their immediate neighbors. So now Moses, now he's listed those sons, he pays particular attention to one man and his name is Nimrod. I should have done some research to see how we came to call someone who's a fool a Nimrod, uh, but I didn't. So maybe I can look into the etymology of that word another time and let you know. <clears throat> Nimrod was a very, very powerful man according to what's listed here, right? So let's look at what Nimrod did. He's the founder of prominent cities that impacted the history of the Hebrews. He founded Babylon and Nineveh, right? Those are pretty prominent cities in Old Testament days, aren't they? Moreover, the means by which Nimrod achieves his ascendancy suggests that his distinction came by aggressive force rather than gradual diffusion of people as shown elsewhere in the table. So he didn't just replicate and have kids that had kids that had kids and just went like this. He actually went into places and built cities and took over cities. Nimrod, in that sense, was typological of how ancient Near Eastern empires came into existence. We also learned that he was the founder of a place called Babel. Isn't that interesting? What happened in the, the city of Babel that God was displeased about? What, Karis? It wasn't a statue. Aletheia was telling you the answer. She, doesn't. Do you want to stand up here, Aletheia, and tell everybody? No, she doesn't. Alethea doesn't like to be in front of the crowds. You're right, Alethea and Karis. They built the Tower of Babel, and, and we'll talk about this next week, but what was the, what? well, not next week, in two weeks. What was the, the point of the Tower of Babel? Do you remember? Um, I think they were probably maybe sacrificing, but that wasn't this particular instance. They were trying to do what? Raise it up all the way to heaven. And then what was the point of that? Make a name for ourselves, right? So we'll be known, right? And so what's interesting about Nimrod, the founder of Babel, he's known as a great builder. He founded cities and built cities And so we see the point of his building, the consequence of that is the Tower of Babel, which caused God, of course, to uh, dispel the people and spread them out on the earth and give them different languages. Nimrod built a number of prominent cities. It reminds me of Cain. Cain was also a founder of cities. Do you remember that? That's Abel's brother. He was a wicked man who murdered his brother. So, he, uh, Nimrod, built a number of prominent cities. And um, it's interesting when you, when you compare him against Noah and Abraham, <clears throat> neither of whom are known for building cities. If you read back the instances describing Noah and Abraham, they're most known for building altars. If you go back and just literally do a word search sometime, what are the things that Noah built? Well, he built, obviously, he built ark. Um, But what did he build when he got off the ark? He built an altar, right? So we'll talk about that a little bit and how that applies to our lives. Nineveh is listed first and is probably the most prominent city of that region. It's located on the east bank of the upper Tigris River, opposite the city of Mosul, that's northern Iraq, and had a history of reaching back to the earliest times. Much later, it became central <clears throat> to the Assyrian Empire of the eighth and seventh centuries, so uh, that so grievously impacted the political history of Israel and Judah, and was the focus of the prophetic ministries of who? Who went to Nineveh? Yes, there were Ninevites in Nineveh. Good one, Karis. Jonah. Yes, Jonah went. Jonah went. Jonah went kicking and screaming to Nineveh. And he refused to ride in the boat. So how did God move him there? (laughs) A big fish. That's right. You don't want to ride in the you know the nice dry boat. That's fine. So um, all of those cities find their um, genesis or their beginning in the man named Nimrod, and that's why he's. I think that's why Moses presents him in this part of the text. Now. We got one left, the sons of Shem. This is verse 21 to 32. So the author now turns his attention and ours to the Shemites with whom uh, will come Eber in verse 21 who's the ancestor of Abraham's father, Terah. So the when you see Eber listed here, he has a place of prominence because he's the father of the Israelites. He's the one through whom the Israelites track their lineage back to Noah. Alright, verse 21, let me read it. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Ashur and Ar-Pek-Shad, and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hal, and Gether and Mash. Archibishad became the father of Shalah. And Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The son, the name of one was Peleg, and for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Jochtan. Joktan became the father of Elmadad and Shelef and Hazarmavath and Jera, and Haderam and Uzal and Diklah and Obal and Abimael and Sheba, and Ophir and Hivalah and Jobab. And all these were the sons of Joktan. He had a lot of kids. Woo! that was a lot of babies. Okay, now their settlement extended from Mesha as you go toward Sephar, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through Shem and his first generation of kids. And then we're going to wrap all this up by applying it to our lives. So after Shem, the first tier of names includes five descendants. So he had five kids. Elam is the first one. And this is located in the mountainous region east of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Modern, think modern, southwest Iran. Its capital, its ancient capital was Susa. Um, You see that in Esther in Daniel chapter 8. Among the coalition of eastern kings... Um, who Abraham routed was the king of Elam in Genesis 14, 1 and nine. So second we have Assur. Assur is located on the upper Tigris River in northern Mesopotamia. So that's modern Iraq. Its name was appropriated for the region and the inhabitants, I, uh, like Assyria. It also appears in the Ham language, where the NIV translated and translating it. Translates it in chapter 10, verse 11, as Assyria. So the appearance of Ashur in each list probably refers to two different people groups. So when you see it listed, the Hamites and the Shemites each had a person named Ashur, but it's, they're different. They're different people. The earliest settlers of Ashur were Sumerian culture um, or Hamitic, and they were supplanted by the Semitic culture that spread through Mesopotamia. So the third son is Lud, or Ludd, depending on how you read that. He's kind of mysterious. We don't know much about him. <clears throat> These people are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 66 verse 19, and probably lived somewhere in Asia Minor. Now number four is Arfaxid. Arfaxid remains a mystery as well, though some attempt to relate him to ARpha um, in modern Iraq. The last one is Aram. Now Aram is typically called by the Greeks as Syria. The Armenians settled diverse sites in Syria and Mesopotamia during the second millennium. The table's early uh, association of Aram with Mesopotamian areas is also indicated by the later prophet Amos in Amos chapter nine, verse seven. Aram plays an important role in the patriarchal narratives, where family connections uh, with Armenian uh, Stock in the district of Haran are mentioned. So if you find that in the life of Abram, later Abraham, as he travels. This explains the identification uh, of Jacob in Deuteronomy 26.5 as a wandering Armean. And then Amos 9.7 place, places Aram as a Shemite, a Shemite neighbor of Elam. So the question is, that's a lot of information, Um, That's an interesting genealogy. And perhaps it was important for the Israelites to trace back, you know, their great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy. But what does this genealogy have to do with you and me? Well, I'm going to ask you three questions because I think a genealogy, whether whether it's this genealogy in Scripture or it's a genealogy that you have at your house. Any of you guys have the genealogy on the wall at home? Anybody have a family family tree at home? Miss kind of, Gwen, you have one? So how many generations can you go back? Like three, four? Yeah, so four. I don't know why I assumed that Miss Jeannie would also have one, but just because you're, you know, crafty, so I thought maybe you'd make something like that. Um, Darlene's family has one that goes back, I think, like three or four generations, and um, they're really neat to look at Um, I think this biblical genealogy and and the one that you would have at home, you know, when we look at those and we think of it from the the realm of Scripture, we need to answer three questions. The first question is this. What am I known for? Right? If someone was going to do, create a genealogical record in, you know, 100 years, long after all of us are gone, what would you be known for in that record? Nimrod is known today as a builder of worldly and ungodly nations. That's what he's known for. That's his legacy, right? Noah and Abraham are remembered for being builders of altars of worship. Men who worshiped God. Didn't create... You know, any huge, lasting cities of importance, but known today as worshipers of God. Jesus gives us instruction about this, about how we build our life. In Matthew 7, 24 and 27, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. The world's kingdom's Many, many, many of the kingdoms of history have fallen and are gone. And the best way to see that is to go to the Middle East, uh, maybe do a tour of Israel and learn how they learn about the past. You see, in Israel, the places I went, he showed me how you learn about the past by uncovering layers of dirt. So they they have this layer and then they go down a certain number of feet and then they can discover who lived there before them. He said because the people just built sort of on top of the, the old ruined places of before. All of those kingdoms, you know, they've fallen. And one day all kingdoms will fall. The kingdom of God will remain forever. Am I known for building my life on the foundation that Jesus provides? I remember one time, the girls were a lot younger. We were at the beach up in Jacksonville, and they had worked so hard to build this beautiful sandcastle. I mean, it was for kids; it was just ornate. They had little bridges and all kinds of stuff. It was really neat. Well, what happens, you know, every six hours in Jacksonville? The tide shifts—not just 18 inches, you know, or, or so here. It's three feet. And so what you had built there, you know, was down by the water, and, and it was within about an hour, their beautiful sandcastle was gone because it was made of sand, and it's it not built to last. So am I placing the foundation of my life? Am I building my legacy on something that will last, something that has value, something that people will look back on and want to emulate, not because we're anything special, but because it's based in Jesus and his work in our lives. So that's the first question. Second reason why genealogy is important and how we apply it to our lives is this. What will my family be known for? <clears throat> Families are known for things, right? If you, if you live in a family that's been in the, you know, the same city for a few generations— that family's probably known for something you know we had a uh we had families you know in my um grandpa's like the the hometown i hail from um which was agrarian um and those families were farmers right they were they were like they were third fourth generation farmers they were known for farming and that's good that's a good thing to be known for but what will your family be known for you know because the legacy that you leave behind the way you live your life influences those that come after you. Will my family be known as a family who rebels against God? As a family who conforms to this world? Or will we be known as a family who follows God? Who stands for his word and righteousness? The Bible has something to say about this in Romans chapter 12. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. (coughs) Excuse me. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Will your people, will your family, be known as God-fearing, Jesus-following leaders who impact the world? I want to talk about a man named George Lyle. Have you all ever heard of George Lyle? Some of you ardent uh, Baptists and WMU attenders probably have heard about him before. George Lyle was an amazing man who who overcame unbelievable obstacles to be used by God. He was an African-American slave who was freed and ordained on May 20th, 1775, becoming the first ordained African-American Baptist preacher in America. After his ordination, he planted the first African American Baptist church in North America, a church that's still in existence today. Now, George and his wife Hannah and their four children left Savannah and went to Kingston, Jamaica in 1782. He preached the gospel there. He is, if not the first Baptist North American missionary, he's one of the first. Southern Baptists, North American missionaries, uh, missionaries to leave North America and go on the foreign mission field. He preached the gospel in Jamaica, which led to over 8,000 Jamaicans being saved through his ministry. Not only did his ministry have a spiritual impact on the island, but his work also made a social difference for the Jamaican slaves. So he was a freed slave Who went to jamaica and preached the gospel now how do you think the slave owners liked having someone preach the gospel to their slaves they did not like that he was one time put in prison for three years for sharing the gospel there and many times he was very close to losing his own freedom because he was preaching the gospel in jamaica and yet the man and his wife and their kids fought and served, and ultimately, in large part due to his work in ministry, on July 31st, 1838, slavery was eradicated in Jamaica. He and his family left a legacy. He and his family are known for taking a stand against tremendous persecution for the gospel so that they could preach the gospel and people could be saved. So as you look at this genealogy and consider your own, what will your family be known for? When people look back at you and your life and your kids' lives and their lives or your your nieces and nephews and your whole family tree, what are your people known for? Last but not least, what will this church be known for? Lord willing, and if he does not return in 100 years, 5th Street Baptist Church will still be here. Will we be known as a church who acquiesced to the pressures of pop culture? Or will we be known as a church who holds fast to the Word of God? Who tells people about Jesus? Who preaches the Word in season, meaning when it's popular, and out of season, meaning when it brings intense persecution? Deuteronomy 10.20 says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. Now, will we continue to hold fast to the word? Because one day persecution will come. One day it probably will not be a popular thing to do in Key West. One day we could be threatened, jailed. We could lose our homes and our jobs, we could lose our families. Will we, like George Lyle, be willing to risk it all for the gospel? What will our church be known for? So I'm going to invite Brandon up to the front. And just three things to say in conclusion. May we be a people who build the foundation, the foundation of our lives upon Jesus Christ. May our generations be known as families who leave a Christian legacy that impacts the world for Christ. And may our church hold fast to the word of God and preach it without regard for our own safety, but in accordance with the call of the Lord upon our lives and upon this ministry. We're going to have time to sing one more song, and so I want to invite everybody to stand. And um, if you want to come to the altar to pray, you can, or you can pray at your seat. This will be a time of invitation and response to the Lord. And um, <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll have this time, and then we'll be finished for tonight. Lord Jesus, thank you for even these texts that list genealogies that sometimes are hard for us to, to be excited about. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand all the detail that's present here. Thank you for what you've shown us tonight. And help us to apply this to our lives, to be a people about your business, building upon the foundation of the Lord Jesus and leaving a legacy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.